Welcome to Pod Academy. My name is Federica Di Lascio. I took part in a meeting organized by the British Red Cross concerning the role and the responsibility of the local media in understanding the conditions of refugees and asylum seekers. The British Red Cross invokes a fair press and ethics from journalism when talking about asylum seekers and refugees, as it released survey results showing 72% of the UK public believe that newspaper reporting about these groups is negative. The independent YouGov survey found that the words people most associate with media coverage of refugees and asylum seekers are illegal immigrants, 65%, and scroungers, 28%. The title of the meeting is Dispatches UK, The Only Way is Ethics, Asylum Seekers and Press Regulation. In this podcast, you can hear a summary of the meeting through the most important thoughts from the speakers attending the event. The first session concentrates on the role of the media in reporting asylum and refugee issues. The speakers are Roy Greenslade from The Guardian, Sander Katwala, director of British Future, and first Dave Garrett of Refugee Action. And what people do is absolutely confuse immigration with asylum. You know, although asylum seekers only make up about 4% of, of, of immigration every year, you know, it's, it's when you say immigration to people, 60% of them say asylum seekers. There's an awful lot of language used very falsely, a legal asylum seeker, and the PPC says you shouldn't use that, and people, people do all the time. It's not just about the language, it's about the, the context people use. There's a, there's a correlation for me, and I grew up in the, in the 80s where news reports were always, remember this time, you know, a black man did this, a black man did that, completely irrelevant to what was going on. It was just it was important to find them as a black man, and you see that all the time in an in asylum world. An asylum seeker did this, um, an asylum shopper did this. But the, the grouping of asylum seekers failed to see asylum seekers as individuals. Some of that work is beholden on us to have the proper relationships with the media, but, but that's difficult too, because we're in a state now where, as you say, Guardian, the independent, private eye, that's great. I wanted to just say some of the answer about pricking this bubble or, or you know, this, 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 this unholy alliance between the public, the press and politicians. For me, I think it has to start with the public. You see movements like the City of Sanctuary movement, you know, where, where local people are saying, well, no, actually, we're meeting asylum seekers on the streets and, and, and we're finding that we have a lot of common ground. It's very optimistic, but I think, I think the challenge has to be locality by locality and people person to person. Very expensive and resource intensive work to do, but that's where it has to be. Societies throughout history have been scared of the outsider, been scared of the unknown, um, and, and that's what we're talking about. You know, the anti-immigrant feeling has, has you know, probably been, a, been, been in place since, you know, for, for, for forever. I think the press wants to have freedom of press, and we all want the press to have freedom of press, and believe me, you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an organisation that sees people come from regimes where there is so little freedom of press, of course we want the freedom of press, but like any right, there becomes duties, and it's quite clear that it's an industry. The fact that the rule exists, and consistent pressure on, on, on editors and on journalists not to do it, gradually does have an effect. You would not ever now have people described, as they mentioned there, in, in terms of their colour, mentioned in an irrelevant way in an article, although that was fantastically common at one time. 
look back to the 1940s and see the way Jews were referred to consistently in newspapers. And that would never happen again today. And that was brought about a great deal by pressure from the Jewish community. And fair play to them. That everyone needs to bring pressure to bear consistently to make these changes. Understanding why did, uh, not over millennial, miserable millennial times, but over 30 years, attitudes to race and gay rights fundamentally shifted and the media shifted with it. Why was that the case and what is the theory of change behind that? Obviously contact was very important and obviously media imagery was important, but there came a point where the sun could do things about sort of Elton John in one way, and another way then Elton John became a kind of hero which the sun would never be homophobic. And on race specifically, you know, polling we did just recently, 40 or 50% of people were concerned if their children had a mixed race marriage uh, in the 90s and the 80s, and it's now 15%, so it's gone. It's gone as an issue. And so when Leveson is talking about minorities, Muslims, asylum seekers, uh, immigrants in general, he's missed actually that there are concerns and prejudice about Muslims that are not used about other ethnic minority settled communities now. There are concerns about uh, there are stereotypical coverage of asylum seekers that are not used about other times of migrants. And I just think the nuance is important. And the reason this matters a lot, I think, is that what we do, what Migration Observatory at Oxford have done, what the British Social Attitudes work that Bob Ford has done, is try and persuade politicians, opinion forms, and news desks that if they think that public attitudes are unremittingly harsh, they're actually uh, tough but quite distinct in lots of different ways. And if you can't persuade politicians and news desks that, you'll be stuck where we are. So it worries me that the sectoral view is that attitudes are basically, you know, 99% really tough and, you know, there's 1% chink of light. It's much, much more open than that. And we've got to take other people open that's really smart. For example, there's still majority support for refugee protection, which is a bit fragile, but it's majority support. Um, there's a deal about contribution where in Britain people believe if you meet the deal, you're fully us. I don't know if French people or Austrian people actually totally feel that if you meet the deal, you're then fully us, or whether you're sent off to do something else impossible before you can make the deal. Those matter to the press. Now, the other thing I think we've got to sort out here is what are we trying to regulate and what are we trying to use for culture shift, etc. And certainly for anything we regulate, we need majority consent for that being over the line. It is a human fact that when you, when you actually meet somebody and listen to their story and understand it, then you are bound to be more sympathetic to the situation. So it is really important to get, not skin on skin, but at least face to face, which I think is, is it, it, it can work to a tremendous advantage. A couple of things there. I think in terms of regional press, I think it's the point is well made, and, and, and Sunder's point about actually, and actually part of our role um, has to be about saying to those groups, certain politicians who are just running scared of the issue, that actually it's not as it's not as bad as all that, and you can actually engage in this debate without getting without getting kicked to the ballot box. Um, but I think I think the, the regional press is important because regional engagement is important, and community by community engagement is important. And again, it comes back to this: it's human beings meeting each other, and, and human beings meet each other in their in their localities and their locales. So, so I think regional press is important. And we haven't talked about social media. I know we're going to later, but you know, social media also can undercut some of the kind of great beasts of. Um, of the media world and, and, and have an honesty about it, although it can also be dangerous as well um, or, or come with, come with um, challenges anyway. An example about that, um, we did a blog uh, about um, the Olympics and asylum uh, seekers and refugees, uh, all very positive, on, um, uh, for a, a, a politics.co 
website. And, and, and very little comment, all just all very lovely, all liberal, lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, it was cut and paste into yahoo.com's um, discussion thing. And we literally, you know, we've got 2,000 trolls on it. I mean, 2,000 2, of the most vitriolic, you know, who is this refugee action and what they and why and all. So um, social media is something that this will be unpacked later, but social media is kind of seen as more kind of real and democratic and, and can help us with this, but actually it, it, it also comes with it. Of its challenges. A modern uh, uh, teaching of journalism is the teaching of ethics, which um, once upon a time it was just purely practical teaching. You do your shorthand, you learn your law, you learn how to go and interview. Now, uh, the ethical basis of journalism is taught regularly in all the major universities with journalism courses. It is, in fact, what I teach at Ant City. And um, that in itself, and we, you know, we do uh, a whole uh, series on. Uh, the treatment of uh, minorities in newspapers and, and how that's happened over time and so on. So it is central to what young journalists or would-be journalists are doing. I think it's very important to uh, take on board the fact that um, journalists, I think, will um, have the chance to act better and not to have to do what they're told in future. The second session focuses on how new media and the digital age affect reporting. The speakers are Vicky Browning from Charity Coms, Roy Greenslade, but the first is Kirsty Marins from the Trinity College of London. When you're talking about digital and social media, you're not necessarily talking about a whole new landscape, you're talking about a, a continuation. And I think one of the things that's important about it in, in the context of um, asylum seekers and refugees is the what you touched on about personal personal stories. And social media gives journalists, it gives people, uh, organisations representing asylum seekers and refugees, and it gives asylum seekers and refugees themselves opportunities to engage with an audience that's interested in, this, in, this, in these issues. If I buy a paper and there's something in it that interests me, uh, I might go to the pub and chat about it someday, I might talk to a colleague at work. If I see it digitally, I can send that information to a network, and that network can send it out to their network, we send it out to their network, and we start to get an exponential dis dissemination of that information, which is an incredibly powerful way of um, connecting with a lot of people about an issue. Um, and I think that's why uh, digital and social media potentially has the opportunity to address some of the very specific things that you talked about here, uh, about personalization, about telling stories, about data, human beings meeting each other. Um, Roy, you talked about how mainstream media dictates policy and dictates policy to an extent and how we need consistent pressure such as we had in the, the, the gay rights movement. And that kind of exponential spreading out that has the potential to do the chipping away, the, the, the challenging of misinformation, the spreading of stories, the, the talking about the issue, um, which will, in principle and hopefully, chip away at some of these uh, more entrenched attitudes. I think what's really interesting about that is when there is something that is factually inaccurate, you do actually have the chance to try and put that straight. Whereas if you were reading The Guardian out on the road, what are you going to do? Shout out. But you can get on social media and say, oh, you know, the Daily Mail reported that 65% of asylum seekers are claiming this, this and this. And you can actually get on their organisations or as individuals or 
you know, refugees themselves and, and say, no, actually, that's not, that's not right. And, and as you say, you send that out to your network, that goes out to someone else's network, it amplifies, and when those voices all amplify together, that should be really powerful and it should help to make things change. I have to say that it certainly can help to change opinions uh, and maybe it helps to apply pressure um, at the authority level um, to um, prioritise that case. The positive outcome is that she, um, she has been rehomed, um, although, sorry, not rehomed, she was actually allowed to stay in uh, her present accommodation, but it just goes to show the power of social media and journalists who tend to times get out of the newsroom. Well, actually, that's really interesting because there are so many journalists who use social media and who are prolific. Uh, Zoe's quite active on Twitter. Um, they're just Caitlin Moran, so many of them. And really, if you follow them, you could start engaging with them. You know, it's a really good way of building up relationships with journalists. And it's not as intrusive as sending sort of press release after press release. And, you know, it's a really nice way of getting to know them. The major campaign which should have an effect on policy could, uh, using the totality of media, if I can use a bit of jargon, uh, could have a beneficial effect. And I think it is the relationship between the consistently agenda-setting print uh, uh, platform, which still is the agenda-setting platform, uh, but the relationship that you can have with uh, new media, which makes a huge difference. It is an opportunity then to raise the... Uh, I think the level of the debate, but also to raise consciousness, uh, as an old-fashioned phrase, among people who who think, you know, just are repeating the knee-jerk public bar view, um, which the the Mail and the Sun, but particularly the Mail, I think, because it's a, uh, it's better at it, to be honest, uh, to counteract that view uh, by showing that there is another thought, and it's not based on prejudice, it's not based on being the phrase they most hate, politically correct, it is about trying to get some factual thought back into it and sometimes some human feeling. So I don't think one should say, oh, well, uh, we need to find the journalists. You can actually engage with them. You were saying social media, but I think you could do it directly onto the newspaper website. Yeah. I don't think digital social media do the same job as print media. I think it's an extension of what they do. I think it's, it's, it's in direct lines. I'm not saying they do the same thing. I don't, I don't think they do at all, but I think... If you think about my, my background originally was print, print journalism, and uh, on a magazine or a business magazine, we had a view of our reader. We knew who our reader was, and we used to write for our reader. This was a, um, uh, a kind of demographic, of, and, and, and often it would be you would, you would actually sort of make a story about a person, and you'd have that person, you'd have your writing for them. Now, with social and digital media, you're not just writing to that mythical person, you're actually writing to the individuals and they are coming back to you. So what I'm saying is it's an extension of what we had before, it's not the same thing, but in some ways perhaps it's a deepening of a relationship with the reader because it's not a construct, it's a real individual person and that real individual person has an opportunity through social digital media to engage with you and to come right at you um, with, with comments on what you said, which can then influence, uh, you know, hopefully influence what you then go on to write, um, you know, going forward. So I think, uh, you know, I, I absolutely take the point that they, they do slightly different things, but I don't think they are chalk and cheese. I think they're, you know, one sort of has segued into, into the other. It, it, it has to be said that, you know, there's plenty of other stuff out there with 
campaigning on the net uh, in a very negative fashion on this subject. So, um, you, you know, if you, I, I, I sometimes access these sites for when I see them quoted in, uh, in the Express and, and so on, and I'm often appalled uh, at, at, at what I read. So um, you can build communities, but they can build them too. And yeah. uh, it's counteracting that which is problematic. Um, what we have here is major transparency. Think of the media once as being a top-down uh, situation which we, the secular priests, us journalists, and we told you what to think. And what the media, what new media has done has allowed um, what were previously discrete conversations to become public conversations. And we might not like what we overhear in the public bar on occasion, but at least it was discreet. Now, the public bar is there on Twitter, on Facebook, and I think you just have to take that on board. I think you have to counteract what is um, obviously factually incorrect as often as possible, and obviously if something moves over into being illegal, that's a different matter because the law covers social media as well as it covers every other form of media. But apart from that, if it's just merely the continuation of a long-held prejudice, then I think you have to kind of put up with it, to be honest. That's just the nature of our new world. The third session is on the freedom of the press and how the newly proposed regulations will affect the reporting of refugee and asylum seekers. The speakers are Jonathan Collette from PCC, Sandra Catuala, Roy Greenslade, but first we hear from Zrinka Bralo of Migrant Forum. When it comes to freedom of information and freedom of speech and freedom of the press, I'll be first on the barricades to defend the Daily Mail. But all I want, and all I've ever wanted, and as a start from my point of view, as an advocate, as someone who works with people affected on a daily basis, I just want my right to complain. And one of the things that I, I sort of confessed to in Levinson's submission was the industry self-regulatory body did not work for us. But even if it did, in, in that sort of way, we didn't really feel that we we're getting anywhere with complaints as they were at the sort of set up, um, set up at a time. Challenging press in public in this current climate feels dangerous to me because they feel so powerful for someone who works at the grassroots level, for someone who feels totally stigmatized and unprotected in a number of different ways. Um, my voice is not being heard or I'm afraid to have my voice heard out there in that debate. It's time-consuming. I mean, even big organizations with massive resources and communications departments find it really, really difficult and time-consuming to challenge um, one article, one story, let alone the whole, um, a whole discourse. I am trying to work to get positive media coverage, and it's almost impossible. One of the, the challenges for us is to create the climate where we can have voices of people who are experiencing, who are refugees, who are experiencing hardship in this country, who have something to say about their countries of origin and, and how we receive them here. I try to address this problem through training of migrant and refugee community leaders and campaigners in digital activism. We've got the funding, we train 100 people from 28 different communities, and we particularly wanted them to challenge trolls to post blogs to respond to the media, and they felt unsafe in doing that. 
and they felt unable to do that, even anonymously. We have the regulatory issue in this corner, but we also have a culture, not only the culture of those who are attacking us, but also our own culture to change, which is culture of fear. It doesn't get um, the opinion, it doesn't even affect opinion, unless they're illegal. So if he said something that was against the law, and we have the laws in this country, then that could be dealt through that channel. What it does get us is accuracy. And, and you know from doing all the fantastic work that you do on polling and how misled the public is in terms of information that they have, all the conversations that we have with MPs, MPs say, oh, we know perceptions are wrong, but you know, there's nothing we can do. So what are we going to do? We're going to cap immigration. They're false perceptions. What I'm hoping to achieve through this process is also raise the standards in the profession, what, what Roy Greens, Greenslade was talking about, and that's ethics, so that we can actually intru- introduce a new culture where it's going to be uh, unacceptable to write lies. So you can hold your views, and if your editors and readers want your views, and if they're lawful, that, that's completely a separate issue <coughs> from spreading lies. Yeah, firstly, let's be honest these are very complex issues. There's a balance that needs to be struck both between freedom of expression and protection of the individual. And secondly, in terms of uh, the importance of complaining, I, I think there is an importance for the reason that there needs to be a record. That's why Zrinka is able to cite the apology and the action that MediaWise took. That's why uh, you're able to, to show and demonstrate that there is public concern or demonstrate and show that there has been repetitive behaviour by a newspaper or magazine. So the, the fact of actually complaining that it's a free public service, it clearly is an important thing. Now on teeth, hopefully I can offer you uh, a, a bit of comfort on that because clearly Leveson outlines that he doesn't think the sanctions of the PCC were enough and there's a, an acceptance of that and the proposal now is that the new body has significant sanctions and the ability to impose fines up to one million pounds. And the crucial difference, and I think it will make a big difference, is that a standard term will be in place. So you, you have that ability to regulate, which has been lacking, frankly, within the present structure, which was really a fairly sophisticated complaints mechanism. So clearly there will be discretion for the operators of the new standard term. Clearly they'll need to look at systemic breaches and serious breaches and clearly that will offer an outlet for concern where people perhaps feel it hasn't been met in the past. Why is immigration special and is it? Um, many of you will be familiar with a poll that Ipsos Mori do once a month called Issues Facing Britain Today where they ask people to name what are the biggest issues facing the country. It's a free response question. And consistently in the top half a dozen or so trends, immigration and race relations And what's really fascinating about that poll is when you break into it, who is saying it's a big issue? Overwhelmingly, it's the readers of a very small group of newspapers, The Express and The Mail, I think, of the two top ones, peak much, much higher than other newspapers. So of all public policy issues, it's one where there is perhaps the clearest read across (coughs) from what is said in the media to public attitudes in a way that shapes the policy debate. So if we can fix the accuracy problem, it may be the regulation needs to go no further. And certainly Lord Justice Leveson left it open. He said that a future self-regulatory body should consider 
whether it should have special provision about discrimination. So there's a serious question, firstly, about accuracy and how effectively that's going to be maintained. And it's clear that accuracy has not been effectively maintained in the past, and a new body must lead to noticeably improved standards of accuracy. And then there is a second question about is this a particular issue where there is a particular problem arising from discrimination? And if so, is that a matter for a self-regulatory body? And that's a, a wider debate than merely is this implementing Leveson. If you take journalism as a quest to give people the best available version of the truth, that's a higher standard than simply, simply taking care not to publish things that aren't true. So we do think you need to go beyond simply not not true, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But whether you go then to discrimination isn't a question for us. Individual journalists should have a right to say, actually, my employer is asking me to do something which is in clear breach of you know, universally accepted ethical standards, and I don't have to put up with it. And there should actually be a whistle-blowing hot, whistle hotline, Lord Justice Leveson says, so that they can go to some external body and get some protection. Because actually there is a tension sometimes between good journalism and freedom for journalists to do good journalism and what is sometimes lazily called freedom of the press, which sometimes just means freedom of editors and proprietors to uh, pursue their commercial in interests. You actually have to protect freedom of the press at the level of the individual journalist as well as at the press publishing corporation. The challenge that we have about media reporting is that they've created this picture of a, an, of a group that doesn't really exist because immigrants are not organic social group. So we are playing identity politics with something that is very difficult to define. The last session, chaired and introduced by Sir Nick Young from the British Red Cross, collects the last thoughts from the, some of the speakers. Now, we undertook a survey of over 2,500 people uh, to see what they thought about coverage of this issue. 72% of people surveyed thought newspaper reporting about refugees and asylum seekers was negative. As a comparison, we asked, well, OK, how do you feel about press reports about nurses? And only 19% of people thought that coverage of nurses and nursing issues was negative. 72% thought coverage of refugee and asylum seeker issues was negative. 83% of the people asked said that journalists are often put under pressure by editors and proprietors to bend the truth. 78% said journalists need a code of ethics on how to report and represent different groups in a fair and accurate way, with strong penalties if that code of ethics. 94% of people asked thought that journalists had a responsibility to report the truth at all times. People have incredibly high expectations of our media. And so much of the discussion today has been about how those expectations are disappointed time and time again in relation to this issue of immigration. 88% that newspaper owners place more importance on selling newspapers than on providing information to or educating the public. Those are pretty sobering answers, are they not, on this issue? I do understand that journalists are under pressure 
to deliver within a time frame, within editorial policy, within all kinds of demands. And there's a difference between um, different outlets. So I never tried to serve the story, but I, I tried to show them reality as I see it. And I have to accept that sometimes they're interested and sometimes they're not, but I'm not giving up. So one, one of the ways is building relationships, and we heard you can do that now through Twitter, but you can also approach them, phone them up, actually. It works sometimes. Um, building relationships and, and involving them in a way that leaves them that space to feel independent, to feel that they're not advocating there with you. I have to guard myself from crossing that boundary a lot of the time. And when my colleagues are pushing, I sometimes have to push back and I have to say, okay, well, we tried, we gave them information, they're not interested. And that's almost like, you know, I know it sounds cruel, but there, there is a media marketplace out there. I think what this has highlighted for me is that ultimately whatever happens uh, in a, in a post-Leveson world to the press... Um, in terms of its regulation and its standards, that's only ever going to be, with all respect to that process and its necessary tinkering in terms of our desire as a, as a movement, because ultimately we need to continue and find better ways of engaging um, with the media, whatever its framework and whatever the framework that it's, that it's operating under. So one of the clear messages is that we don't give up and we become more, we become more proactive. It's, it's really important that we take our stories and our fight to journalists and editors across all stripes of media, even if we think sometimes that might be dangerous, I think we have to take that risk. Um, and, and inherent in all of that is not putting our views to those people, but it's putting refugees and asylum seekers and their stories to those media outlets. I think... The point's been well made time and time again that the other side of this, and the thing that will change politicians' and media's view, is public opinion. You know, the press is ultimately, it sells newspapers uh, based on what public opinion is, and obviously those two things feed each other. So time and time and time again we said individual by individual, and the programmes of work that loads of people doing about bringing um, host community people together with uh, refugees, asylum seekers and other immigrants, that's so important. And, and, and that's difficult to do. It's done at a community by community level. I think you've definitely got to be proactive and constructive. I think an awards uh, system would be a good idea. I think seminars involving journalists, direct contacts with journalists. I thought Peter Tatchell's suggestion was a superb one that every time you see a bad story, contact the journalist involved and suggest a good story because journalists are human beings and they are going to listen. If you don't get into the dialogue, you're not going to make progress. It's a reciprocal relationship. Journalists are not experts. You know, they, they are experts perhaps in writing, but they're not experts in specific subjects. You're the expert. They need you. They need you to tell the story, to give the facts. So when you have those relationships, you'll be the person that they'll turn to when they have a story coming up. They'll think, oh, yes, Zuna, and yep, she's, she's the one I need. I'll get in touch with her, even if it's just by Twitter. It does work.